0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Welcome back, cardio nerds. We pick up from last week as Dr. Richa Gupta leads a masterful discussion with Drs. Joanne Lindenfeld and Javed Moslehi from Vanderbilt University and Dr. Enrico Amirati from Niguarda Hospital in Milan, Italy. In episode 29, part 1, we learned about myocarditis in general, and now in part 2, we discuss myocarditis in the COVID era. We discuss the differential diagnosis for myocardial injury in patients with COVID-19, review two cases of presumed myocarditis in Milan, Italy, and the ramifications for heart transplant programs in the COVID era. Dr. Amirati tells us the sobering reality of the toll this pandemic has had on healthcare workers and ends with an impassioned plea to learn as we move forward. As Dr. Amirati so eloquently said, it is something that I hope will change the way we think about life, avoiding thinking that life can be dull when it is simply normal. Friends, be sure to tune in next week for episode 31 for a case discussion on myocarditis, when Dan, Corinne, Heather, and I lay the foundations for everything you need to know about myocarditis based on a real case. As always, just remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology in the COVID era directly from expert cardiologists. <laughs>
2: So I think we'll go ahead and and move on. That was a a good overview of the types of myocarditis, how we diagnose and treat fulminant myocarditis, and how our definition of myocarditis in the classical sense is really changing, you know, based on these new molecular techniques that Dr. Moslehi was talking about. Let's switch gears now to talking about COVID-19 related myocardial manifestations and what we're calling myocarditis. Before we talk about myocarditis, I also wanted to just bring up the fact that there is myocardial injury in a substantial number of COVID patients. Uh, and myocarditis is just one manifestation of myocardial injury in COVID-19. For now, how the way that I've digested the literature so far, it seems that we know two things. So first, troponin elevation and myocardial injury is a bad prognostic sign. And second, troponin seems to rise in conjunction with other inflammatory markers like IL-6, D-dimer, LDH, and this tends to happen in the later stages of illness based on some of the studies that we've seen coming out of Wuhan in China. So the running differential that I've come up with, which is really broad for why myocardial dysfunction may happen, includes myocarditis, as we've been discussing, sort of with direct myocyte infection, or in immune response to the virus, a cytokine storm leading to an immune hyperinflammation that can be directly cytotoxic to the myocyte and result in endothelial dysfunction. Takotsubo or stress cardiomyopathy or acute hypoxia uh, resulting in cardiac injury from ARDS along with acute pulmonary vasoconstriction and increased afterload on the RV with RV failure. So multiple different mechanisms. Anything I'm missing?
0: What we have seen is that there are an increased rate of complete atroventricular blocks. So we do not know if this is related to a sort of myocarditis, but it's something that uh, we, we observe in this patient that are COVID-positive at the end, we are not sure that it's just uh, an association because uh, now there is uh, an epidemic, but, but this is a fact.
2: I see. That's really, that's really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with these patients and what you're seeing in terms of cardiac manifestations and how you distinguish myocarditis from something else that might be going on with the heart?
0: First, a uh, patient presenting uh, since the beginning with a primary cardiac condition for instance, chest pain can be more easily re- recognized as patient with uh, myocarditis associated with COVID. That uh, in our experience, they have a recent history of fever and cough, but uh, on CT scan or on chest X-ray do not have uh, significant signs of uh, of pneumonia. So it seems that the pattern of clinical manifestation is. Uh, Slightly different, or there is a higher prevalence of cardiac involvement. These patients are rare comparing with the patient with the primarily lung manifestation. And then we have patients that uh, along uh, throughout uh, the hospitalization have an increase of uh, troponin, and uh, these patients are generally those. Um, critical ill patients, uh, so we are not sure that uh, troponin is a true manifestation of uh, myocarditis, especially if uh, on on echocardiogram or on ECG you do not find any significant change. Uh, so it could be just a sort of uh, response injury related to the hyperinflammatory state. Uh, or related to the septic state. So in this case, in my view, it's not really a typical myocarditis. Even if they are very rare, we can have also uh, acute myocardial infarction in patient uh, with, uh, with COVID. So again, we are not sure that is uh, related to the disease or it is just uh, related to, to the very stressful uh, uh, situation in patients with uh, an underlying uh, condition of coronary artery disease.
3: That's really interesting. It's, so, it's really wonderful to hear your personal experience. And I would just go back to one thing you said about mechanisms. I don't think you missed anything, Richa, but we also have to think about molecular mimicry, which is something we think we see in transplant with CMV that you see more rejection following a CMV episode. And that that's just a situation where a foreign antigen can share some sequences or some structural similarities to a self-antigen. And some of that potentially could explain some of the later presentations that we see. In other words, an 8 to 10 days later. So that's one other possibility.
0: I have to add that uh, we had also other coronavirus subtypes. And uh, in the last two years, uh, we have performed uh, nasopharyngeal swabs in all patients presenting with acute myocarditis and the coronavirus and uh, influenza virus were the most common virus uh, associated with acute myocarditis. That means that that molecular mimicry can be a relevant mechanism of uh, myocardial injury because at the end, in previous cases, we have no trace of uh, RNA virus in the in the myocardium when we perform endomyocardial biopsy. So in my view, the molecular mimicry can be a phenomenon that is also present in COVID.
2: And just for our listeners, can you just explain a little bit more by the molecular mimicry? You're referring to sort of this more like a, a reaction to an immune reaction to the virus rather than direct infection of the virus itself. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, um, there may
3: be cross-reactivity with an antigen on the virus that's similar to a self-antigen and thus you make antibodies to self.
2: Got it. And it sounds like this process may happen more chronically as well. Uh, and be much more of a prolonged state of pathology for the patient, extending past just the acute infection and maybe even lead to chronic cardiomyopathy. Is that what we
3: think? I don't know that we know that, but at least it could lead to the late, mic my- you could say that a patient who's been having symptoms for eight to 10 days, if they develop antibodies at that point, and there are certainly other reasons to develop those, but that could then present against anti-myocardial antibodies or others. So that would explain some of the late, whether or not that would go out chronically, we don't know.
0: Yeah, I, I- I fully agree. Also, in my view, the point is that it can explain the acute manifestation from the onset of a fever or or, or uh, pharyngitis to the onset of acute myocarditis. But uh, As in most of cases, myocarditis resolves uh, spontaneously. That's probably the the possible explanation is that immune response responds against the virus. So there is no more viral infection. And for this reason, there is also a feedback and also myocarditis can resolve spontaneously. We do not have enough evidence that uh, a persistence of virus, at least in humans, can cause uh, cardiomyopathy, in my view.
1: Thank you, Dr. ready. Actually, I'm going to be starting in the CCU in uh, two days at the time of this recording. And so... I uh, really do want to make sure I understood your methods of differentiating, at least your clinical way of differentiating whether cardiac injury in the setting of COVID is truly myocarditis or not. And if I heard correctly, I heard that you used two differentiating features. The first one was whether cardiac injury was the predominant feature of the initial presentation where myocarditis might be more likely versus cardiac injury developing later in the course of a complicated illness. And the second point you made was looking at the biomarker elevation troponin elevation if it's associated with EKG changes and uh, LV dysfunction as opposed to an isolated troponin elevation where the latter may be from demand ischemia or inflammatory injury. Is that fair? Yeah, it's fair.
0: We have some cases of true Takotsubo syndrome, but this is again the case of uh, sick patients that uh, with a very stressful condition and in most cases uh, were uh, aged uh, women. So again, it occurred in patients where Takotsubo can be expected at the end.
3: Just another, as we're, let me take this advantage to ask Dr. Amirati a question. Have you seen much elevation in wedge pressure, do you think, in these patients? And just all of them with underlying cardiovascular comorbidities, you might expect in the absence of a myocarditis that they might be stressed and have elevated wedge pressures. And with damaged lungs, the level of wedge pressure you need to have a lot of fluid would not be as much. Have you seen that at all in your Uh, subjects?
0: I'm afraid that that we do not use pulmonary catheterization because at present we have more than 50 beds of intensive care units, all full, and we do not generally use pulmonary catheterization in in, in these patients. Another point is that in most cases, as we have a a dramatic lung injury, and there are also... um, risk related to barotrauma, uh, I'm not sure that it's really uh, a safe maneuver in cases with uh, uh, high pulmonary hypertension in in this condition to perform uh, this kind of maneuver. Uh, I don't know because I I have no personal experience uh, in uh, pulmonary catheterization in this setting.
3: Yeah, we don't either, just we've noticed a couple of cases that responded whose uh, oxygen saturations improved remarkably with some diuresis. They were clinically suspected to have that. And I don't know either, but it'll be interesting to see because we know damaged lungs leak a lot more at a lower wedge pressure than undamaged lungs, which so sure, be interesting.
0: Yes, I'm sure that diuretics can be useful as we see that there is also a significant increase in uh, pro levels. And that, for this reason, uh, at least we have uh, an indirect marker of increased wedge pressure. So I, I believe that it's uh, reasonable that the diuretis can be useful in this setting, in particular, if we see an increase of pro-BMP.
3: Well, we hope this is just an aside, but we have a little uh, Venus wave monitor that sits on the wrist and we have a very good data that it mimics wedge pressure. So we, we are going to start using that in our patients to see if we can see what the incidence of an elevated wedge pressure is in a non-invasive way without having to have people go in the room any more than they would otherwise do so. Hopefully we'll get some data from that study sometime soon. And,
0: and I'll just jump in here for a quick question uh, relating to the idea that we can't really use PA catheters even though we may want to. Are we having similar issues with endomyocardial biopsy? Are we doing bedside biopsies or is that going to be a problem going forward? I have to say that I do not like to perform a eco-guided biopsy, but this is due to, I'm I'm used to perform a fluoroscopy guided uh, biopsy. But, uh, you know, we are in the setting, at least uh, in Milano, where there is a real outbreak and uh, and so it's very difficult to uh, to organize uh, an endomyocardial biopsy so we base our diagnosis on clinical echocardiographic and laboratory markers uh, for the suspected diagnosis of myocarditis of course if we have significant uh, for instance ST elevation of course, we perform a, a coronary angiography, but as these patients are critically ill due, in most of cases, due to the a lung disease, we do not want to perform an endomyocardial biopsy to add a risk related to this, uh, to this maneuver. As we feel that the, the main cause of disease is the pneumonia, we do not have a, a at present patient on venous arterial ECMO, and all patients that uh, that uh, need ECMO are on uh, venous venous ECMO. So it's not such a, a relevant issue that uh, that can change. Uh, uh, really the therapy as in other kind of myocarditis where, where we think that maybe it's a giant cell myocarditis or an nusenophilic myocarditis.
3: Right, we agree we can't find a reason in the face of a positive uh, test for COVID-19 that we can't find a way to biopsy those people routinely, so we're not doing it. Even yeah, if
0: a- I believe that it's very important to do that, probably in the we hope in the next weeks when uh, uh, the situation will be under control with less cases, maybe we, we will be able to better characterize each patient if there, if there are complications like that. Agreed.
2: Yeah, it makes sense. I think we sort of, on the other side, we've not had a lot of experience with these patients yet that we're sort of underappreciating how logistically challenging it would be to float a swan in a patient with ARDS who may need proning, for instance, or to do a, an invasive procedure like a biopsy on someone who's you know on the vent or you know, cannulated with VV ECMO. You mentioned that we sort of know the prognosis of lymphocytic myocarditis. I wanted to ask you, in, Dr. Amarati, in, in dealing with these COVID 19 myocarditis patients, it seems at least in case reports that their prognosis overall is good and these patients recover. Has that been also consistent with your experience?
0: At present, we have in my hospital, the Niguarda Hospital, we have a uh, There two cases of of clinically suspected acute myocarditis. One is a 38-year-old patient and the other one is is a child. In uh, the first case, ejection fraction is preserved. There is um, almost no pneumonia, but uh, uh, this patient is... uh, Covid positive, and uh, we perform a coronary angiography, and the, the clinical uh, it was an uncomplicated myocarditis. The second one is a is a child that is uh, in the ward with left ventricle ejection fraction of thirty percent. We decided to use uh, steroids, but in this case, I believe that also immunoglobulins. Intravenous immunoglobulins uh, can be an, uh, an alternative, or the use of both of them. And again, we do not perform a cardiac magnetic resonance even in this uh, in this setting because cardiac magnetic resonance is currently closed. Uh, because you have to understand that it is also very difficult to move these patients because they are in contagious, and so cardiac magnetic resonance is closed. And. Uh, That's the same
2: at Vanderbilt, too.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And at the end, uh, the prognosis uh, is not so bad. But we have also cases uh, reported from other hospital that they they told me with fulminant presentation. So if you have a fulminant myocarditis uh, associated with the COVID, can be can be a big a big problem. But in most of cases, we haven't seen such a dramatic uh, lung injury like uh, in, in cases uh, the mainly pneumonia. So I don't know if this. Uh, the, the, the immune response is different; it's more directed against the heart. I don't really, I don't know why these patients uh, have uh, uh, myocarditis while uh, the lung manifestation are not so bad. So I cannot say that patients with myocarditis uh, have a worse prognosis. We can say that patients with cardiac injury are associated with a worse prognosis.
2: I see. So it it does seem like there's almost a a
0: dichotomy to the presentations. Probably it's not just a a dichotomy, because uh, you can have also gastrointestinal manifestation, like uh, in children, or you can have, even if uh, they are quite rare, uh, neurological manifestation. Uh, So it's really a systemic disorder where pneumonia, interstitial pneumonia, is the most common manifestation. Okay.
2: Um, one last question about whether you use inflammatory markers as any sort of guideline for therapy or whether you're checking these routinely or in any systematic way or maybe only in the critically ill patients. How are you using those?
0: I believe that that are very important and to have an idea since the beginning, since emergency department. So C-reactive protein, procalcitonin, and whole blood count with the lymphocyte count, uh, D-dimer, and even troponin, LDH, transaminase, renal function are very important to have a general idea of the severity of the disease. Oxygen saturation is not enough in my view because uh, it's very variable from young subject to older subject. And we have seen that uh, this marker, since the beginning, have uh, uh, are associated to to increased risk, in particular D-dimer. There is a Lancet paper where uh, D-dimer above one are associated with a a node ratio for mortality of uh, 18. So very high. We are using uh, tocilizumab. We have a, a national perspective trial. It's not a randomized trial with the use of these anti-interleukin 6 inhibitors. And what we have seen is that uh, C reactive protein and interleukin 6 levels can really decrease. And this is associated with a uh, a significant improvement in the clinical condition of, of patients. So it seems that the inflammatory response, the, cy- the so-called cytokine storm, is really relevant. And uh, so I, I, I believe that the model that describes in two phases, in two stages, from the viral infection to the inflammatory response is a good model to describe the disease and to think uh, on how to cope with the disease thinking at a different targets uh, at different time points. So probably at the beginning, even before fever or during the, the fever phase, uh, drugs that reduce uh, the, the viral spread in the lungs are more important. While during the late phase of fever or during the, the lung injuries, where you have evidence of high level of inflammatory markers, it is more important to reduce the, the inflammatory response. So I believe in this model, and we look also at d Dimer, and we are uh, uh, all patients are on uh, enoxaparin. At least the prophylactic, and we are thinking about a trial where we compare prophylactic enoxaparin to half dosage of uh, anticoagulation with enoxaparin.
2: That's really interesting. So it's interesting to hear that your experience is supporting that model of first the virus being the initial predominant cause of pathology, followed by the immune response of the host playing a a bigger role later on.
0: With regards to the anticoagulation, and obviously the D-dimer is elevated, and we initially heard about this from our colleagues in China. Are we seeing a lot of of extra clots that are associated with that D-dimer, or is it just we are going after the lab with the presumption of the coagulation cascade is just out of control. Of course, the dimer can be also a marker of inflammation. So it could be increased uh, uh, due to the the inflammatory response, where in most cases, we do not have uh, evidence of signs of uh, thrombosis, venous thrombosis, even if uh, in um, at least uh, some... uh, we, We perform just a few... Postmortem examination, this is a real pity as we do not we do not know the causes in particular of sudden cardiac death. So we are not sure that in some cases they are caused by pulmonary embolism, for instance, or uh, if there are microembolic events in the lung, because one potential cause is that uh, beyond the pneumonia. It could happen uh, microtrombotic events in the the lungs that can uh, explain uh, such the uh, the severe hypoxia that is seen uh, in in this patient and could explain the fact that even uh, on mechanical ventilation you are not uh, always able to increase uh, uh, oxygenation. it's a complex issue. We do not have a, a clear response at present, but I believe that it's time for clinical trial to assess if an hypothesis is, is real or not. It's, it's something that uh, uh, we missed at the beginning of this outbreak, at least uh, in Italy, but we hope that everywhere there will be a phase where a clinical trial can address some uh, clinical uh, issues.
2: So I wanted to spend the the last few minutes of the episode to discuss the implications of COVID-19 on heart transplantation. And Dr. Amirati, you wear many hats. You're a transplant cardiologist as well. I wanted to know a little bit about how you all have had to deal with heart transplantation in the era of COVID-19 and how you've managed patients that are on the wait list and who who need to be transplanted Uh, what's been happening
0: during these stressful days we were able to keep on the transplant program and uh, we performed three transplant in march but uh, it was very challenging I really I don't know if it's right uh, uh, to to keep on performing a transplant in this, in this setting because you know that probably patients that are transplanted uh, with uh, in this setting are at higher risk to be infected by this virus, uh, even if uh, you try to isolate the, these patients. For this reason, we decided just to perform a transplant in patients in uh, urgent t- status, so just in patients that, that were already admitted in the hospital dependent on uh, inotropes or patients uh, on um, LVAD uh, with uh, severe infections or patients with uh, acute disease. For instance, we had a, a 51-year-old patient that was on uh, VA ECMO Due to uh, an acute myocardial infarction, and I believe that is the the, the right way to, to approach the problem. you you keep on the program, but just for a urgent transplant. Because in my view, if a patient is quite stable at home, probably is uh, is reasonable to delay the time for uh, for transplant.
2: That makes sense. So just sort of restrict the transplants that you do to the patients that most urgently need it um, as yeah. a way to prioritize them. I also wanted to ask you, and and Dr. Lindenfeld, sort of what are we doing now in terms of selecting donors? How is that process different? Are we testing everybody for COVID-19?
3: So far, I think we are testing all donors. We're testing all recipients too, as well, for, for COVID-19.
0: Yeah, the same in Milan, of course.
3: And
2: then do you know any transplant patients who have gotten infected? Uh, I, either of you, maybe we start with Dr. Amirati, you know, how are, have they been doing? There have been case reports that because they're better at practicing social distancing, that they seem to be doing okay as a as a whole, but these are just, you know, case series. What what do you think?
0: It's different when we consider a, a recent heart transplant and uh, all transplant, uh, in the heart transplant we performed in the last month, are uh, negative, so we we check for nasopharyngeal swab and uh, they are, mm, at, at present, are, are negative. Then we have uh, transplanted patients that are um, at home and they live their normal life. And uh, based on our knowledge, at present, we know that uh, at least four patients uh, that uh, that receive an ART transplant uh, got the infection. We know that one patient died. We do not know exactly the course in the, in, during his hospitalization. And we have two patients that survive without big issues, just they reduce uh, the level of uh, mycophenolate. While we had another heart and kidney patient that is still uh, admitted, with severe respiratory distress and insufficiency on non-invasive ventilation at the beginning of hospitalization. And in that case, we we treated this patient with uh, tocilizumab and now is just on um on oxygen so he improved and this is an example that we add over the um, maintenance uh, immunosuppression with uh, cyclosporine mycophenolate and prednisone also tocilizumab of course there is an increased risk of uh, infection but uh, we we still believe that can be uh, useful. You have to think that uh, at the beginning, this patient had the level of C-reactive protein of 100 with uh, uh, upper reference limit of 0.5 and procalcitonin was negative. So you have a marked uh, inflammatory response associated with uh, this with infection. And uh, there was a a significant uh, improvement after administration of to- tocilizumab so i really believe that uh, trials are needed to demonstrate that this strategy is uh, can be effective maybe not uh, anti interleukin 6 anti interleukin 1 but uh, i believe that it, it must be tested
2: yeah that makes sense and um it sounds like we also just need bigger series to know whether heart transplant patients do worse or better or are just like anyone else who get the infection, that they have the same sort of spectrum of severity, I think.
0: I believe um, that it's still based on age, on the presence of uh, significant comorbidities. For instance, uh, renal insufficiency or a recent history of infections or uh, left ventricle dysfunction. And again, related to, to the sex, as we have seen that male patients have uh, a worse prognosis comparing with, uh, with women. For, um, for instance, uh, in Italy, we had this sad uh, fact that a several uh, physicians died, uh, currently more than 80 uh, 87 physicians died and most of them are are men so we are not uh, but the proportion the proportion till a uh, few days ago we had uh, uh, 50 56 uh, uh, male physician comparing with three uh, female physician that uh, that died now i do not know the the, the current uh, Uh, the current proportion, but this is just to have a a general idea about the proportion, the difference between uh, uh, women and and men. And another important uh, risk factor that we have seen is related to obesity. Obese patients uh, have by far a a worse prognosis. So all these factors uh, must be considered also in uh, our transplanted patients.
2: Wow. That, that discrepancy between men and women is really profound, and that is really very, very sad. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry to, to hear that uh, about those deaths. I had one last question really for Dr. Lindenfeld, which is sort of how we're uh, changing things at Vanderbilt in terms of our transplant program. We've been traditionally you know, very high volume uh, and able to get patients transplants who really need it. What's what's going to be different? Do you do you see us doing a, a lot more LVADs? What What are you thinking is on the horizon?
3: Well, I think this is a, a, a difficult decision because we have to pay attention to a number of factors, and that includes the hospital the ability of both the the donor hospital and the recipient hospital to have adequate resources, protective equipment to do these, so that we're not you know, preventing. Routine patients with COVID-19 being treated, and then we also have to to worry about the risk of the patient getting it. If they're already hospitalized and have a very high risk for death, then we have proceeded ahead. One thing we have done, though, is we've changed remarkably our donor procedures in that we have the local hospital procure the organ, and we send only one person to pick it up and bring it back. So that's that's changed a lot. And uh, this really, patients in the hospital, they're already at risk for being in the hospital for. Higher risk for getting this virus, so we feel better about their risk if we 've checked the donor and other things, and we have adequate resources so I think a lot of things will change overall and uh, Just before we end, I just want to thank Dr. Amarati for sharing this his incredible experience and what 's been done in Italy and we 're so sorry about the the people lost, everyone including the physicians and everyone else and we just want to thank you for taking the time today to
0: to educate us thank you thank you it's it's very important to share. Experience, because uh, I believe that probably we did not take care enough about the Chinese experience, and that was uh, a big mistake, at least at the beginning, because probably there were important manuscripts published in Lancet, uh, and just reading uh, these initial reports, uh, uh, you really could understand uh, the severity of of the disease uh, and uh so i really i really believe that uh, we missed these pieces of information that uh, that is related uh, to the fact that, that we do not uh, we are not really in uh, in contact with uh, other realities we are more oriented and we share more experience between europe and us probably than comparing with uh, with china and this is uh, probably also an occasion to grow up together I hope.
2: I think that's a great message. We really have to learn from each other and sort of rely on each other. And everyone else's experience should guide us uh, in a in a situation like this. So, thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. This has been incredible information.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone.
2: Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to CardioNerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now, a flutter moment.
0: Hi, Cardio Nerds.
2: My name is Barry Stanton, and I've been a nurse at the Cleveland Clinic for 30 years. I have a two-to-one flutter moment. My first flutter is that I've been so blessed and honored to work with the smartest, most compassionate, and innovative cardio nerds in the Coronary Intensive Care Unit. My second flutter is that I've been able to offer them a little comfort and happiness by making masks during COVID-19. I've made about 250 masks out of my quilting material for my coworkers, friends, and friends. Family. I love you, cardio nerds. Keep teaching us and stay safe. Thanks for the show.